the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Morning, everybody. It's Saturday, 710 KNUS. I'm Peter Boyles. Good morning. The 710 KNUS Weather Center weather. 35 will be the high. 15 tonight. 48 on Sunday. 52 on Monday. I've been looking forward to this for, uh, I don't know, about a month when I finished it. Tom Glavin joins us. And he may or may not remember, but we met in a phone interview Wild Bill Dodge City and Tombstone, and now this latest book that's wonderful, The Last Outlaws. Thanks, brother. Good morning, and welcome back to Denver, Colorado on the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I, I'm i so drawn to this, and because i, I got to ask you a thousand questions. But <laughs> as soon as I finished it, I went back on, uh, on the TV, and I rented and resaw The Long Riders, and mm-hmm. I got to ask you about which is your favorite of, of the Earp movies. <laughs> and, so can I talk with, can I start, before we go to facts, what did you think of the film The Long Riders? Well, I, I remember as the Walter Hill film, and I haven't seen it for quite a long while, but I, I remember enjoying it. I saw it for the first time when it came out in the theaters. It was probably around 1980 in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And then I saw it again probably about uh, five, six, seven years ago, and I think it holds up. And I think Walter, I always liked Walter Hill films, especially his westerns, I think, are very good. And he's still active. I, mean, I think he's like in his, his 80, 81. He came out with his last movie last year or earlier this year. So I enjoy The Long Riders. And, and uh, it seems to be one of those films, like, it's the same thing that what you just did. You went back to it and watched it. Somebody prompted you to watch it. Mm-hmm. It seems to be one of those films that people retain. You know, if you've seen it, Every so often you want to rewatch it. It shows up on your list again. Oh, I haven't seen that for a while. It's time to watch it. Well, I watched it after I finished The Last Outlaws. And mm-hmm. and can I can I switch over to the um, the portrayals of Wyatt Earp and the portrayals of uh, of Doc Holliday and Tombstone, which is another one of my true faves. What do you what do you do with that film? You know, it's, it, it's, there's always this debate about uh, first of all, what's what's the what's the best uh, film that depicts the gunfight, the okay corral. Cause there've been a number of versions and, and that taken all kinds of liberties with the gunfight, the okay corral. But usually the debate is between the two films that came out within a few months of each other. There's Kevin Costner's movie, Wyatt Earp. And then there's the film tombstone itself, which is more of my favorite uh, because I think the, I mean, both films have a really good cast. Uh, I do think my, my grudging, Vote goes to Kurt Russell. I think he was a really good wide herb. He looks looks the part very well. Uh, Val Kilmer as Doc Holliday is like an indelible performance. It's probably uh-huh. it's probably his career defining performance. Yes. And uh, and then and of course you have Sam Elliott as Virgil Earp, perfect casting there. And and some people might remember Bill. Uh, oh, who played the Morgan Earp? Uh-huh. Uh, Bill Pullman, uh, not Pullman. Bill. Uh, anyway, people know who I mean. And he, and and it's and you have the really good supporting cast, the guys who play Curly oh. Bill Brosius oh. and oh. and Johnny Ringo and Johnny Ringo, even, even down to the smallest part, you know, it's, yes. it's just done quite well. How and the back the backstory to that movie is that it was kind of a chaotic shoot. 
uh, with the original director being fired, and yet it's yeah. one of those things like like Casablanca. The final result was greater than anybody expected. Yeah, and Ronald Reagan turned that role down. Yeah, he, he managed to maintain a career, though, somehow. Oh, somehow. But no, he turned Rick Blaine, and he turned it yeah. down. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the truth about the death of Johnny Ringo? You know, what I put in my book, Tombstone, seems to be the consensus among the, the historians and the experts that he, he, he killed himself. Yeah. Uh, and in in the film Tombstone and in you know popular lore, uh, he was he was killed mm-hmm. in a shootout either with with uh, Wyatt Earp or as, as the film Tombstone has it, he's killed in a shootout with Doc Holliday. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, uh, the 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 evidence suggests that that he uh, uh, killed himself and yeah. and, and uh, you know, but but since the door is still open, you know we don't have the kind of forensics they didn't have the kind of forensics then. If people want to go with one of the other versions, and it seems to be to work, you know, in Tombstone, it seemed to be a really fitting coda to the action of the movie. Then, then go with it. When I've read, and it may have been your your work, with apologies, uh, that is he a German national and goes? Is he is he a, is he a, was not born in America? I'm talking about Johnny Ringo. Is that true? That I don't know. Right. I, I, I don't. Recall. I'm trying to recall. I, I remember in, in the book writing about he and his family crossing across America, mm-hmm. and his father actually dying in a, what yes. appears to have been an accidental gun that guy yeah. accident. Yeah. Uh, but I just don't recall, or just don't know if he was originally born outside the United States. Did in the end were Wyatt and Do- uh, were Wyatt and Doc friends in the end? They seem to have a reconciliation. You know, as, as some people might not know, uh, <laughs> after the so-called Earp Vendetta ride, mm-hmm. uh, which was led originally by, by Doc and, and, and Wyatt, mm-hmm. uh, they had a falling out. This one account is that uh, uh, Doc disparaged Wyatt's yeah. then-new girlfriend, uh, Josephine Marcus, and that put a split between them, and then they went their separate ways. But but Wyatt, when when Doc was was quite ill, uh, and he was, uh, if I remember correctly, living in, in Colorado at mm-hmm. Glenwood Springs, Glenwood Hills, mm-hmm. uh, they they uh, the, Wyatt went to visit him, which is depicted in the film Tombstone. Yeah. It's, it is a poignant moment. So it seemed like they they reconciled, and and uh, when 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 Doc died, and he was only I think he's thirty six or thirty seven yeah. years old. You know, at least at least he died knowing that his, his that Wyatt was his friend, and they were had been reunited. This is a wonderful guest. Tom Glavin is with us, and this is the recent book, The Last Outlaws. But again, he wrote this book, and I'm trying. When did this come out? It was the it was Wild Bill, Dodge City, and Tubestone. When, when did that book hit? Well, Wild Wild Bill. It was interesting. The 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 it it, it became what what was called and is called the Frontier Lawmen series. Mm-hmm. This trilogy of, of books. But the first one to come out, which was in 2017, was Dodge City, and okay. I was not intending by any means to come out with a to do a, a trilogy or any kind of particular series. I was really interested in doing the Dodge City book. I loved doing the book. I loved the characters. I loved everything about it. It was a great experience. But then I was on. I actually had a contract for a different book. But while I was on the book tour, uh, and I remember I was I had just gotten flown into the Wichita airport, Wichita, Kansas. And uh, my editor called me to say, well, it's going to be on this sun- first week out of the gate. It's going to be in this Sunday's New York Times bestseller list. Wow. That was very pleasing. And it stayed on the list yeah. week after week. So by the time I got done with the tours back in New York, my publisher, was, my editor was saying, is there a way that you could put the book aside that you're working on 
And instead, is there another iconic American West character that maybe hasn't gotten a, much much treatment lately that we could write about? And my my thought was, well, Bill Hickok. That had been decades, literally, since anybody had done a, a biography of him. And so we did Wild Bill, and the same thing happened. Wild Bill was successful. So I said, mm-hmm. well, well, let's let's move on with Wyatt. Let's revisit Wyatt and and Doc and take them to the, the next uh, stage of life, which was Tombstone. And so that became the Frontier Lawmen trilogy, and, and oh. it, accidentally, it's, they're wonderful. I I go to Sturgis every year on a motorcycle, and oh yeah, and I've we, been there. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> then you know. But for years and years and years. I stayed in uh, in Deadwood, and uh-huh. I, you know they they haunt Deadwood. I, I'm convinced that. Yes. <laughs> do, do you believe the same thing as I do? I mean, I believe they haunt it, and um, they they do. And you know, Wild Bill his his his, his grave is there, yeah. and, and they have a they have a fence around it, understandably yep. to protect it, because yeah. the, unfortunately, every so often, the grave of some of these uh, you know very well known. Uh, Wild West characters can can be endangered. I mean, in, in in the case of Wyatt Earp, and his 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 gravestone was actually stolen uh, mm-hmm. back in the ni- in nineteen fifties. Well, they think, stole, I, yeah, I, as you I, point I, out, they stole the Daltons' tombstones yeah. and to put in. The, I mean, we're jumping ahead, but they got theirs lifted too. One more yeah. that I promised I'd ask: calamity sure. with calamity Jane. Was that was gonorrhea the calamity? You know, I think. It, 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 it wouldn't be surprising, considering that, that that part of her way to survive in the American West was to be a prostitute. Hmm. So, uh, so it, it's quite a possibility. But she, but it's it, it's beyond any any doubt that she had a very serious drinking problem. And so, uh, even whether or not Gonorrhea was present, she was of, especially in her later years, which we're only talking about in the thirties and her forties. Sure. Uh, she became more of an unstable, unreliable uh, person because of her drinking issues. In fact, when she wrote her so-called autobiography, <laughs> uh, you know, she misremembered or did not remember half the things in her life. Yeah. Well, there I've read that the nickname, if that's possible, that cowboys and others gave venereal disease was the Calamity, and that she picks up that jacket, Calamity Jane. Yeah, there is in, in my book Wild Bill. There's this, there's a, another story about it that she she was on some kind of adventure and 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 they they, they use this term for calling her calamity and that she's always wherever she goes, there's trouble follows, you know, and 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 she's always a, she's always this, this kind of a reckless character. So every, everything she touches turns into a calamity. When uh, when I first started going to Sturgis, one of my dearest friends and back in the I call it the nightmare years was. David Allen, his mom had been mayor. And so, and I used to see his mom, and he, she told me that there used to be a woman that sat in a bar, and they've moved the saloon, you know, the number 10 is, they sold the rights to number 10, it's really mm-hmm. done, you know, all that stuff. But this old lady sat in that bar, and if you bought her a drink, she could talk about Wild Bill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I missed out yeah. on that. True story? I think it is, yeah. and, and, and you know, it's, it's probably more than one person has done that over the years because Wild Bill himself was a good raconteur and enjoyed um, holding court and, and, and telling stories, and so why not have people who, in generations since, tell stories that involve yeah. Wild Bill and probably many of the same stories that he himself told back in the 1870s. Yeah. There was a, there's a chair over the door, and it's alleged <laughs> now. Oh, of course, I'm like you, but I thought, it was, what a cool thing, there's a chair over the door of the old number 10, which isn't really the old number 10, which is back to the mythology. 
And they mm-hmm. said, Bill was in that chair. And I go, wow. You know, because I just. Yeah, you know. Yeah. It, it could be, but it reminds me of a story which is in the Dodge, my Dodge City book. Uh, and you may have heard this one before or, or recall the story, but uh, Bat Masterson spent the last the 15 gun, years in the gun. life yeah. in New York. And he just, he, he, had, he had a gun with him that yeah. had like 22 notches on it. Uh-huh. Every so often somebody would come along and finally persuade yeah. Bat to, to sell the gun that tamed the West. And Bat would say, this is the only gun like yeah, it. You yeah, got to get yeah, out of town. Yeah. yeah. And the next day, he'd go to a pawn shop and buy another gun. And get another gun. I've, I've read that story. <laughs> and, and also, Pancho Villa's widow. When uh-huh. uh, Pancho Villa's widow sold Pancho's gun like 50 times to the gringos. I mean, they come down, I can't sell this. Well, of course. And then she'd sell it. Love it. And it, there's a story on, on, on uh, about Geronimo. When uh, years after he had surrendered and he was on his, he go on these train rides because he's a little bit of a mini celebrity. And it stops. He would he would he would offer to sell the buttons <laughs> off, his, off his vest, and he would sell. Then he would sell. I have no more buttons on my vest. You have them all now. And then he'd uh, <laughs> then he'd say goodbye, and they'd, the train would take off. Between then and the next stop, he'd sell more buttons on his vest. Love it so much. Tom Glavin's here. The last outlaws. So I was. Well, I want to talk about Northfield, Minnesota. But how are mm. these guys related? The politics. They're Confederates. They're out of, you know, pretty much the same place. Who are they? You know, there's Clell Miller, and there's the Daltons, there's the Jameses, and there's the Youngers. Talk about them, please. Well, the James Gang and the Younger Brothers, uh, Frank and Jesse, of course, were brothers, and the, there's Cole, Jim, Bob, and uh, maybe Bill. I can't remember, but there was, the other, there was a fourth Cole brother in there. They each, they each had their own outlaw gangs uh, that were pretty successful if you want to use the term successful for people who were robbing and stealing people's money <laughs> but uh but they they uh, had become you know legends in their own time and then and then when they worked together uh they did so in what became you mentioned it before one of the most famous events in the wild west history which is the northfield minnesota raid in 1876 and the uh, the James brothers and, and the Youngers decided that they were going to leave their more usual stomping grounds, which was Missouri and Kansas and Oklahoma, that area. And they were going to travel north to Minnesota, Northfield, Minnesota, and they were going to rob a bank there. And their their reasoning is a little bit murky. Uh, you know, one of the reasons why they were so successful in their when they did their jobs down in Missouri and, and Oklahoma is that people knew them and they had they had fret people who would befriend them and oh, hide yeah, them yeah. they had hiding places they were hard to find in minnesota they were they were pretty much exposed so the the attempt to rob the bank was disastrous and there was a big sh- shootout that went on and the younger brothers were uh captured and shot up and captured i think jesse also suffered a pretty serious wound and but jesse and frank james escaped and eventually made their way back to missouri and the connection to the Daltons is that um, the, the the Dalton gang or the brothers who formed the Dalton gang, their mother was a younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was, I think, the sister of the of the man who was the father or one of the brothers of the of the, of the younger bandits. So it was, I guess, in the DNA a little bit that uh, when she gave birth to kids and, and the Daltons and the, yeah. uh, she and her husband having fifteen children. Yeah. That uh, of those fifteen, I think there were eight boys and seven girls. And of those eight boys, four of them became 
notorious outlaws, which is a you know fifty percent outlaw rate <laughs> in the same family. <laughs> so that that was that connection, and it, it was not only a blood connection, but it was as, as events unfolded in my book, The Last Outlaws. There was there was a psychological connection too, in that the leader, so-called leader of the Dalton gang, uh, was Bob Dalton. Uh, one of the motivations for the raid on Coffeville, which is the a climactic moment in the book, Coffeville, Kansas, is that he wanted to succeed where his younger cousins had failed. You know, the Northfield, Minnesota raid failed miserably, and um, uh, but so and, and his, his 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 cousins ended up in jail, in prison. So one of them died in prison. Oh. Another one, the other two others spent many many years in prison. So he wanted it was a stain on the family, <laughs> and so this raid on Coffeeville to rob two banks simultaneously in broad daylight was going to work, and it was going to undo what the family had been embarrassed about for all these years. Did did the people, the citizens of of, uh, of Northfield, did they know they were coming? That's I've read a book about the Northfield raid and. And there was some guy, a historian, that said it was the last battle of the Civil War. I don't know what to do with that, but that they knew that these guys were coming. And and it was – but come back to something else. I promised myself this. I'd do it sequential. What Because what, what, you could – like I said, you could stay at the house. But what role does the American Civil War play in all of this? Well, it really, it, it, it uh, even before the, the war actually began, uh, uh, you had what was called bleeding Kansas, and you had a lot of turmoil in Kansas and Missouri. Uh, the basics of that was that Missouri entered the Union as a slave state, and a lot of Missourians wanted Kansas to do the same, but there were also free staters who wanted Kansas to enter the Union as a, a non-slave state. So that gave rise to things, things like Quantrill's Raiders and Bloody Bill Anderson and people like that. And and several of our characters, you know, one of the younger brothers rode with Quantrill, uh, Jesse James and his brother Frank rode with these with these bushwhacker groups. Uh, there, was, there was like a civil war that, that pre-sages pre, 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 pre the actual civil war. And so this is a kind of, uh, for the Daltons too, the, the Dalton parents were having kids between the 1850s and the last one, the youngest, Emmett was born in 1871. So the civil war was a, was a big important presence in their lives there was during the war itself the kids would be hearing gunshots and there would be raids going on and, and the, the famous lawrenceville lawrence kansas raid in 1863 and um that killed a lot of people and so there was when the civil war ended what did not end was the feeling of of, of uh, the southerners had of being aggrieved of being put upon of being you know discriminated against uh uh, the the whole Reconstruction era, the occupation of the, of the Southern states. So these the the Daltons still carried with them, even though they were st- they were active into the eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties. I mean, years after the Civil War ended, there was still that enmity that they felt towards Northerners, mm-hmm. and, and 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 it was the feeling was mutual. Sure, uh, for, uh, went on for decades. You could say it's, it's, as we it's going to say you might hold yeah. that over to today, but yeah, yeah, and. You know, and so I, I always thought this through. And you are so, Tom Glavin's here. Um, I got to look at the back. Uh, St. Martin's is his publisher in hardback. The Last Outlaws. If you have a someone in your family, this would be a get to the bookstore. This would be a wonderful Christmas gift. Um, but they they grudged it, and, you know. And plus, they're they're pretty much all from Missouri, are they not? 
Yeah, most of them were born in Missouri and Oklahoma. The Dolphins I'm talking mm-hmm. about were Missouri and and Oklahoma, and so and that was their that was their territory. That was, mm-hmm. and they had a lot of people who saw them with this kind of a bit of a romantic yes. uh, sheen to them as as Robin Hoods. I mean, the same thing had happened to Frank and Jesse James mm-hmm. that they that they robbed from the poor and uh, from the rich and gave to the poor. Yes. They they robbed from the rich, all right. You know, the, the, <laughs> but the they, kept, and they, they uh, went after the railroads. But I don't know that they distributed much to the poor. Uh, you, but still, they they were they were seen as as these romantic figures. You case. you you pose this great question: you know, when do outlaws become gangsters? And I've mm-hmm. I've actually used it in open lines on the radio show a couple of weeks ago. But um, I'm a geek about the depression gangsters too, and mm. and I and Pretty Boy Floyd, aka Charlie Floyd. And Charlie Arthur Floyd. And as the story goes, he would burn mortgages in Oklahoma and places yes. like that. True stories, right? Or I think. That, that is uh, some of the research that I've done. I came across that, that, that one of the reasons why he was seen as an ally of the common man, so to speak, or, or the downtrodden, is that when he robbed banks, he would, as part of his uh, visit to the, to the bank, mm-hmm. he, would, he would grab, uh, you know, paper papers that were mortgages of, of nearby farmers and other business people, and he would burn them. Uh, not enough if it effectively ended their mortgage, but it was just symbolically, yes. it was a very popular uh, 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 thing to do. And so so even though Pretty Boy Floyd was was a, was a murderer, oh, yeah. uh, there, there were people who thought that he was also a, a, a hero in some ways yes. because he was... He was he was taking an action on behalf of the of the poor poor people. There was this great story that he was he was blamed for something he didn't do, and it somehow troubled him. And so they robbed a bank, and he burned the mortgages, and he turned around. And he said, "You tell them all, Charlie Arthur Floyd did rob this bank. He hated Pretty Boy." And what do you do with <laughs> what do you do with Bonnie and Clyde? Are, are, are Bonnie and Clyde outlaws or are they gangsters? You know, they they those. Synonymous those words in, in the 1930s, uh, and one of the things that I, I like about my, the character of Emmett Dalton in, in the last Cowboy, last Outlaws is that he was born in 1871, so it was very soon after the Civil War. He died in the 19 mid 1930s, I believe. His life spans that transition from what were the Wild West Outlaws until you get into the 1920s and 1930s, where the, the outlaws of the 20s and 30s were, the, were gangsters. They, they, yeah. Those words became synonymous. So you had, you had, you know, Capone, and yes. you had uh, uh, Lucky Luciano, mm-hmm. and you had uh, Legs Diamond, and uh, of course, uh, uh, Pretty Boy Floyd, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. Machine Gun Kelly, Ooh. John Dillinger. Where does Dillinger you know, fit? I'm a, I'm a kind of a geek about reading about Dillinger's, Dillinger's life. Is he an outlaw or is he a gangster? Well, again, he, they were both. Yeah. I, I think you know you you. The word gangster, it's kind of ironic, but it would have been really appropriate in the 1860s and 70s and the 80s when you had these people forming gangs, mm-hmm. the Dalton gang, oh, absolutely. the Reno Brothers gang, James gang, things mm-hmm. like that. But they were known as outlaws. But And yet, when you get into the 1930s, they were known as gangsters. Yes. Many of these were individual operators. I mean, John Dillon could, could pull people together to help them do a, commit a crime, but yes. he... It was not necessarily a John Dillinger gang that went around the country from place to place. And he he was like, he picked people up, right? He would you, you want to come around, and then they didn't have to go to the next one. But but back to the you know your guys, the Daltons, they stayed together, did they not? They did originally. It was the the Dalton gang was Bob Dalton, who was the brains of the operation, which isn't saying a lot, but he was the brains of the operation. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> 
there is there is Grattan, another Grattan Dalton, and then the youngest was Emmett Dalton. Yeah. And they had a fourth brother, Bill Dalton, who uh, when we we see him in our in the in the book, he is living in California. He's married with two children. He's working a ranch, and uh, he could have escaped the criminal life, but he kept being lured into it. His, 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 his first at first it was because he would protect, help hide his brothers when they committed mm-hmm. a crime, or in other ways support them, bring them food, uh, send them money when they were down in the, down in their chips. But he kept, but especially when there was the, after the shootout in Coffeyville, the results of that, he went to full time criminal outlaw, gangster, if you want, and he he teamed up with a fellow named Bill Doolin. Mm. So there was a lot of there was a lot of closeness and loyalty to the uh, Dalton gang and, the, and those brothers. But I should point out that there were two or three other brothers uh, who were also in the book, though they played less prominent roles, who were legit, so to speak. It wasn't that they cut themselves off from their outlaw brothers, but they were basically saying, we're not going that way, going down that path. We have businesses where we have, we have uh, we our own families. So, so the, the, they, they stayed and that they did not cut their brothers off at all shows that there was still some loyalty, but they were not going to pick up a gun and start going on the trail on the, on the outlaw trail. I need to sell something. Uh, Tom, can you stay with us for a little bit longer? Sure can. All right. Uh, sure. Tom's book is The Last Outlaws, and you can pick up all the stuff. We'll come back and talk about the herbs a little bit, too. St. Martin's Press is his publisher. What a great gift. 710 KNUS. Good morning, everybody. Sandy Clough coming up to talk about sports. Stack Optical. And I've not yet skied. Somebody asked me this morning, have you skied yet? Not yet. But um, everything, I, everything I can see through. Uh, comes from Alan Stack, Stack Optical, great selection of eyewear. They work on appointments to be sure to call ahead before coming in. If you've got a difficult prescription, they can obviously help. On-site eyeglass production lab delivers the best quality prescription sunners, sport lenses. I got my motorcycle glasses, eyewear, Stack Optical, prescription skiers, sunners, you name it. Stack Optical has what you're looking for located at 2233 South Monaco Parkway, near South Monaco and Evans. Call them today. Ask for the $69 eye exam, 303-321-1578, 303-321-1578, online at stackoptical.com. Alan Stack, Stack, S-T-A-C-K, optical.com, Premier Care, Vision Health, Stack Optical, and tell them I sent you. But again, you make the appointment, set the time. It's on you, 303-321-1578. Morning, everybody. 710 KNUS Denver's talk station on a Saturday morning, the 9th of December, 2023. I'm Peter Boyles. Glad to have you here. 35 will be the high, 15 tonight, 48 on Sunday, Monday, 52 degrees. Uh, I've been really looking forward to this. Tom Glavin's here, The Last Outlaws, about the Daltons. But it, like he's written all of these wonderful trilogies, or now it's become a trilogy, on the Old West, one of the questions also, I was like last night thinking, oh, come on, i got to ask him. Um, the Earps as a, as a group of brothers, but, boy, they, they were willing to cross the line as well. And can you, can you compare and contrast Wyatt and Morgan, Virgil, the rest of those guys, to Daltons or to Youngers or to any, any, any choice but comparison analysis? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I should point out that it, it was not all that unusual for sir, certain people in the in the Wild West to cross the line back and forth. 
you know, there's one of the characters in the, my Dodge City book is Mysterious Dave Mather, and and he's somebody who could be robbing a bank, and then six months later he's a deputy marshal. Uh, it was it was sometimes it was just opportunity, sometimes it was just circumstances. Uh, you know, you could you could you could be working as a as a constable in a town, and then one of your old buddies comes along and says, "Hey, uh, I, I need some help stealing this herd of horses." You know, <laughs> so it did happen that these figures crossed the line back and forth, and some of them never had to actually pay. You know, would, would choose one side or the other eventually. Uh, but uh, the the with the the Earp brothers, they were not angels by any means. I mean, one of the the, the lesser known Earp brother named James, he and his wife Bessie were longtime brothel owners, and uh, unapologetically, you know, this is how they made their living. They were they were business people, entrepreneurs. They were business people. They oper- whether it was Dodge City or it was Tombstone, they operated a brothel, and were pretty successful. And in, and in fact, there were times when when Wyatt was an enforcer, That's or right. not an enforcer, was a bouncer. Yes, you know, at, was for, at, at the, the, the first, I don't know whether he was married, but the first woman that he traveled with was she not a prostitute? Yeah, Wyatt seemed to have a particular affection. Maybe it was just again opportunity. You know, the the ratio was something like a hundred to one mm-hmm. in, on, the, on the American West of men to women. So, uh, uh, so they, but and then and then. Um, you know the 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 so the the Earp brothers were not angels, and sometimes they engaged in some shady business mm-hmm. practices. But fundamentally, they were supporters of law and order. Uh, you know, and, and this partly was because of uh, you know the, a couple of the Dalton brothers had served not very long, but served as, as deputy marshals and had not had a good experience doing that. Plus, they had an older brother. Uh, who was a, a was a well-respected and, and rather effective deputy marshal, but he was killed in the line of duty. So that did not make a positive ex- impression on them, whereas with the Earp brothers, the oldest of one of them was Virgil, who served in several capacities as a lawman, and he was respected, and he was looked up to by his brothers. And Wyatt, of course, in Dodge City, had his chance to become a really effective lawman, and he was. I mean, he teamed up with mm-hmm. Bad Masterson. To, to tame what was considered the called the wickedest town of the, of the American West. So by the time they got to Tombstone, uh, again, they, well, first of all, they were not had no interest in becoming being lawmen in Tombstone. They wanted to live that, put that life behind, and become successful mm-hmm. businessmen. Tombstone was a booming silver mining town in 1880, and they wanted to be part of that boom and not not be wearing badges. Uh, it was circumstances that that. That meant that they ended up being fighting. Basically, they were fighting for the law and order faction in Tombstone, and that's how the OK Corral happened. Um, what, what, what was the corral that that? I mean, I've read different, and you're wonderful. What was it really about? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's several things. Yeah, I mean, as core level, it was basically a, a, a lot of a lot of hostility had developed between the Earp brothers and the. Clantons and the McLowry brothers, so it, it gotten pretty personal, and and so that was at the, at the very basic level. Uh, it was like inevitable that they were going to come, they were going to confront each other. But they each also represented something that was going on in Tombstone. Tombstone was at a turning point, at a pivotal point in its history that it could be remain sort of like a cowboy town, and which was rather lawless, or it would. A lot of the people there and a lot of the public officials wanted to become a more more sophisticated, ready for the 20th century kind of town. And so that's 
inadvertently, without intending to, the Earth represented that law and order faction that wanted to be, that, that Tombstone to be a place where there were restaurants and churches and and schools and a good place to raise families and be be a business person. So, so the the each side and the McLaurys and the Clantons represented the 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 past in a way. They, so they each represented also the one the Earth represented the future. McLaurys and the Clantons represented the past. They wanted things to stay the way they were, have few laws as possible. And if you wanted to go into town on a Saturday night and shoot the place up, mm-hmm. well, that's just part of the way life was, and and that that wasn't going to be allowed anymore. And it was was it a power struggle? Someone once wrote that. Is that fair? Yeah, it was a power struggle. Who's going to end up directing the future of Tombstone? And and it was it was a lawman power struggle too, because they they there was a uh, Virgil was the marshal, a mm-hmm. police commissioner of Tombstone, but there was also the sheriff of the county was Johnny Bean, mm-hmm. and 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 which one Johnny Bean was aligned with the Cowboys, and Virgil of course was aligned with the more prog- progressive faction in town, and and, and his brothers who were deputized for the for the big gunfight. So um, it, it, was, it was a power struggle too between Behan and, and Virgil Earp um, that that uh, eventually was you could say it was won by the Earps even though they paid a high price for it. Jump! I'm gonna can I jump back and forth between books? Can I have sure. To, okay. Um, the last book, the Last Outlaws, and it comes down to a place called Coffeeville, and I was under the impression, which shows you who I, well, how much I don't know was that after Northfield um, and the Northfield raid in Minnesota, and it's sort of the beginning of the end, if not the end of the beginning or whatever, but now comes Coffeeville. Why is Coffeeville so significant and important, particularly in the end of the Daltons? Well, Coffeeville, uh, the, the Coffeeville, Kansas, which is in the southeast part of the state, is uh, is a place that, Bob Dalton had come up with this scheme that they were going to rob. This was in October 1892. We're going to rob two banks simultaneously in broad daylight. And that in itself was not the brightest idea because the Coffeeville is very close to the Oklahoma border and the, the Dalton family was known there. You'd think you'd pick a bank and pick a town where you're not going to be known and almost <laughs> instantly recognized for, for, for committing a crime. Um, the other reason why it was significant is that Coffeeville was no longer really on the frontier you know the 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 west as it was had moved west that 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 boundary between the wild west and the so-called civilized or settled west had kept moving west so coffeeville had been left behind happily i mean people did not see themselves as a frontier town anymore they they saw themselves as a progressive town with businesses and all the things that you wanted in a place to raise a family so uh and it was also kind of significant too because they're they're beloved older brother, Frank, who had died in the line of duty, was buried in Coffeeville. Mm. So, there's, so Coffeeville becomes the epicenter of, of uh, not only the, the Dalton gang and, and, and their activities and, and their attempt at a very bold stroke, but it becomes, it becomes a symbol of, of the, really the, the death of the Wild West. It was the last major uh, gunfight. I mean, there was another one a little later in Ingalls. Uh, but uh, but Coffeeville, it was such a dramatic event, and it's it's and it's, it it caused the 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 end of the Dalton Gang as it was known then with Emmett and Bob and and Grattan. So in that way, when 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 the Daltons were un, usually unsuccessful in committing the crime they intended to do in Coffeeville, that was that was really the 
the, the, the one of the last gasps of, of outlawry in, in the Wild West. And, and n- now this is what, you know, you pose this question. I've really been thinking about it. If it is, a, if it is to end there, uh, that time period or that era, then I'm going to ask this question, take a break and give it back to you. When does it then begin again? Because now comes Pretty Boy and now comes Dillinger and now comes Bonnie and Clyde and Ma Barker and Creepy Carpus and all these guys I read about most of my life. Where did they come from versus the end of the Daltons at Coffeyville? Can I put you on hold, Tom, and do a turnaround? Can sure. I do? Okay, hang on. I just love this guy. I mean, his work is impeccable. This book is uh, The Last Outlaws, The Desperate Final Days of the Dalton Gang. But again, I cut my bones on him, and he did that book on Tombstone. And he, he, not only that, he does Dodge City. He does Wild Bill Hickok. He just does it all, and he does it so well. The ski resorts are getting snow, and I have not yet skied. Making it, but I'm, but I would actually, I spoke with uh, John Marriott yesterday on the, on the phone, and Larson Ski and Sport. Perfect time to consider taking your skis and snowboards for a tune up or maybe even getting new gear for Christmas. The best winter sports equipment place, I mean, it, it is head over to Larson Ski and Sport, L A R S O N, just south of I 70 on Kipling. You're westbound on Kipling. Come down the ramp, or excuse me, westbound on I-70, come down the ramp on Kipling, make a left, come underneath the tunnel, underneath I-70, out the other side, and you see the Crab Shack. Right next to the Crab Shack is this great, big, huge wooden building, seven days a week, Larson Ski and Sport. They're unbeatable. Perfect stop on your way up or down. If you're coming down, same thing. Get off on the Kipling exit, head south. you got to get something fixed. You want to get something tuned. Or that's enough of these. I want to get new ones. The convenience of Larson's unbeatable, the perfect stop on your way up or down the hill. Find them, large wooden building next to the Crab Shack, south of I-70 on Kipling. Uh, his son Jack now is my boot fitter. <laughs> These guys are like, trust me, John and the crew, Paul and everybody at Larson's, absolute experts. So this morning or this afternoon or tomorrow, you say, okay, we're shopping for the holidays, whatever it is. See them seven days a week. Please tell them I sent you Larson Ski and Sport. South of I-70 on Kipling, 303-423-0654, Larson Sport, L-A-R-S-O-N.com. Seven days a week, these are our guys. Saturday morning, everybody, 35 will be the high. It snowed last night. It's cold outside, 15 tonight, 48 Sunday, Monday, 52 degrees. Coming up, Sandy Clough, and we're going to talk about CU Buffs and talk about the Denver Broncos, and these guys are on the show. In the meantime, this doesn't get any better than this. Uh, I've been reading, I guess, Tom, for quite a, a number of years. Tom Glavin's with us. His latest book, The Last Outlaws, about the Dalton Gang. And one of the questions that he poses, and he's a really, really good historian, is, okay, where's the line cross, and where does this end, and where does it begin? So I was asking myself after finishing, and they're in Coffeyville, and it ends. Northfield has ended it. And now there's a pause, but for people to try and put this in perspective, Grover Cleveland is president of the United States. I mean, this is almost modern day. And then when the other guys pick up, the, you know, the, the Jameses are gone, and now here's John Dillinger. How did, how did that all transition, if you would? Yeah, the, the Coffeeville event was 1892, and then there were some remnants around. There was the there was Dalton, uh, Doolin Dalton gang. And some of your listeners may recall the Desperado album that the Eagles put out in the mid seventies. That they want to sure. recheck that album out. Yeah. It's all about the the Dalton Gang, and the Duel, the it morphed into the Duel and Dalton Gang, 
And uh, they they ended up being tracked down and, and killed or incarcerated. And that was pretty much the end of the outlaw. Had, of course, out the far out west, you had Butch Cassidy, and, 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 and but they they were pretty much over by 1900. <clears throat> and you had, you know, what happened to the outlaws is that they were more lawmen than outlaws. It was much more difficult to commit some of these crimes, and especially to get away with them, you know, because of communications was. You know, it used to be if in the 1875, if a bank got robbed, you might have to send somebody on a horse to the next town or two towns away to find the sheriff. Now, in 1895, if a bank is being robbed, you telegraph or you pick up the phone and call the sheriff in the next town. He's got a posse together in, in, in a half hour. So they, so the outlawry, for the most part, died down. There were always a few exceptions here and there. You had World War One, where the country was pulling together and and then the big change was, of course, uh, the 1920s came along and you had Prohibition and then followed by the Depression. And that, that the combination of the, the lure of big profits from the illegal sale of alcohol combined with the desperation of the, of the Depression in the 1930s, it spawned these, this, this whole new renaissance of outlaws and gangsters with, with people like we mentioned before, John Dillinger and, and, and Al Capone and, and, and the, the, the Lacoste. Nostra gangs and Meyer Lansky and some people like that. So they became, you know, somebody like a Pretty Boy Floyd or Machine Gun Kelly became your modern day Jesse James and your modern day yeah, Cole Younger, your modern yeah. day Bob Bob uh, Dalton. One of the things that I thought about is I'm also a geek about, or you know, the, the Irish gangs, the Italian Sicilian gangs, the Jewish mm-hmm. gangs, but. Jesse, Jesse, and Frank didn't run the numbers racket. <laughs> you know, they they were bank robbers or train robbers, um, mm-hmm. and I don't know how much that plays out in it. But I come back to Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde, Machine Gun Kelly. You mentioned those Bob guys, Barker. Bob, oh, Ma and Creepy Carpus, and all of those guys. Yeah. <laughs> who? So, Tom, who are they? Who are those guys? Well, you know, they were really people who are uh, probably never going to be going to divinity school or become <laughs> economics professors yeah. in the first place. You know, they yeah. they they were people that that probably some of them had abusive childhoods, mm-hmm. uh, grew up in orphanages. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had bad luck. They had no marketable skills that was going to help them make any kind of satisfying career or even have a job. Especially when the depression came along, there were you know thousands of people on bread lines and. And and if you could rob a bank, that was yeah. looked as easy money. And 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 so what? There was the threat of dying young. I mean, they probably felt that their lives were not terribly worth living anyway. They were they were in, in un, unhappy and desperate circumstances. So so you know a lot of these people, the, the names you just referenced, uh, they they were not going to be. They really weren't cut out for having a successful careers in other fields anyway. So, so they they ended up with the you know, the guns were readily available and, yeah. and uh, usually had poor security at these at these banks. So you, had, you had guys who were barely who weren't even trained to know how to use a gun was as, as as bank guards. And also, that's the rise of the FBI too, is it not? It is, and that was another big difference I think that uh, made for the end of the Wild West outlaws. You had. We had the Pinkerton Detective Agency, for example, became very large, and they had offices in New York and Cincinnati and Chicago and Denver, and uh, they eventually sort of transitioned. Not a lot of the same, a lot of the same people, but the, the the early days of the FBI, they started doing things like fingerprinting and profiling mm-hmm. of criminals, and, and some of these more modern uh, policing techniques were too much for the Wild West outlaws. They couldn't come up with that. 
And it was those same techniques that became even further enhanced once the threat of the gangsters became bigger and bigger that that brought a lot of these guys down to track them down. You had, you had Frank Hamer was one of their uh, most famous of the, of the uh, FBI law enforcement people. And and I think he was the one that that, uh, eventually caught Bonnie and Clyde. Yes, he did. Yeah. That's a wonderful movie. That most recent film where they're, they're just on the highway and they're, they're Mm -hmm. they're running them down. And uh, yeah. 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 And and another thing you had too in the 1930s, which was very reminiscent of the, of the, uh, the peak of the outlaw days of the Wild West is again. You had some of these were gangsters who looked at romantically. I don't. I don't mean oh. romantically like women pine for them, but I mean that they were seen as thumbing their nose at the rich oh, folks. Well, I mean, the rich were very unpopular during the Depression because they were the ones with money, and everybody else was barely. You had, yeah. We were on bread lines. Now that was and true. So if you robbed a bank now, or I, robbed a train or whatever you did, you know, you were you were you were striking a blow for the common man. The the last book I I just finished and brought it into Lou for a show book. Is this latest book on uh, Russell Buffalino and the murder of Jimmy Hoffa, and mm-hmm. um, some of these guys, you know, really played out. Now Buffalino did not; he was a very quiet guy, and that you know the the, the the quiet Don. But they're around all these other guys, Tony Provenzano. They're around, you know, mm-hmm. the Gambinos. They're around these guys, and and the same thing is true in the black community, where those those guys got attention. Yeah, I, and I you know I, I see repetition. A, a lot, and so when people loved Frank and Jesse, and then people—I mean, were people—I don't know how aware they were that, you know, B- Bonnie Parker was a psychotic, and <laughs> m- murdering people didn't seem to bother either one of them. But yeah, but, but a lot of Dillin- a lot of people really loved John Dillinger. They did. He, he was a flamboyant character, and he he did not hide, you know, his <laughs> light under a bushel. He, he was. He, he was a he was a gangster and he was he was proud of it and he was successful at it and and you know there was a, there was a certain perverse pride that he became he became the very first FBI public enemy number one was yeah. John Dillinger he's still the he's still and, the target he's still the target if you go he, he the is. FBI he's yeah. the man yeah oh he he's is. the man he's the, he's number one and yes. now it's, it's maybe a field you don't want to be number one in but he was number one in his field. And there's at one point they were aligned like stars. You had number one was Don Dillinger, mm-hmm. Pretty Boy Floyd was number two, yeah. Machine Gun Kelly was number yes. three. Yes. And so there, the people, it's 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 almost like some of our celebrity culture. It doesn't matter if you're a celebrity for the wrong reasons, you're still a celebrity. And it made Hoover a celebrity. And it it did it did. And and you know Hoover in his later career became you know almost Ooh. like a caricature. But people sort of kind of forget that he he for all his flaws he did pulled together the, an effective crime-fighting organization, the FBI, and was very open to, as as techniques became you know, perfected and could be used in, in, in finding criminals, uh, the FBI employed it. They, 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 that, that's, that's how, that's how they, by the time World War II began, the, the, a lot of the crime that had been you know, part of the Depression was, was wiped out by, by the FBI and, 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 and their support of local law enforcement. And he had his own radio show. <laughs> Let's go back well, to that's, that. That's, as you well know, that's that's the height of one's life. Yes, yeah. On <laughs> your own radio show, <laughs> and you know, one of the wonderful things that you do, and, and so many. But I'm a fr- I, I years ago was turned on to Fr- uh, Frederick Jackson Turner, and mm-hmm. and I see things through his eyes too. And everything you everything you say, I think, captures his. I think if I'm out of line, I apologize, but how he sees this. Um, this world, where where, how, where does he fit as a historian for you? 
he, he we, I, we've used, my Bob Drury and I have written a couple of uh, several books together and and uh, on American history and we've we've used quotes from Frederick Jackson Turner a couple of times because he 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 saw like the progress oh. of history uh, the progress of American history the the march of American history uh, as as especially as as it moved west and I think. I think a lot of my work, uh, again, I didn't set out to because I don't. I, I, I do a lot of research and I try and be as authentic as possible. But I'm not a trained historian. I'm mm. just somebody who works very hard. I think, and I think over over time, what my books have done and my books with Bob Drury have done have shown that there's there's mm. there was this march of history, there was yes. this march of, of American civilization. Yes. That to the de- to, obviously to the detriment of the indigenous population that was sort of like bulldozed out of the way. But but the, the the frontier kept moving until it bumped, until it got out to the. And then it was coast. over, and and then, and, then it, and then it was over, and then and in 1889, the U.S. Interior Secretary said, or the Census Bureau said, the, 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 there is no more frontier. Yeah. Every place that every, every place that, that un, uncharted territory has been charted and settled. And that was in 1889, yeah. so it, which is kind of sad because that was a lot was a long time ago, and a lot has happened since then. And they point out right after that they overthrew Queen Kamehameha. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> That's right. Hey, do me. What are you? What, of, are, what are you working? Kind of oh, what are you working on now? As my final question. Well, I have. I just mentioned Bob Drury. We have our oh. next book, uh, which is called Throne of Grace. It'll be out next May, and it's about the the most the most important and and the most uh, effective and the most adventurous American explorer that nobody's ever heard of. A man named Jedediah Smith. Hmm. Who outdid Lewis and Clark? Wow! But because he died so young uh, and, and 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 on the Santa Fe Trail, he's only thirty-one years old. Mm-hmm. Was sort of lost to history, but he had a riveting life. He was a okay. he's a mountain man's mountain man, and he's he's subject of our next book next May, we, Throne of Grace. We will meet again. Anything that Tom's done, Good. I recommend. Saint Martin's Press is one on the Last Outlaws, and if you got some geek in your family like me, it's a gift. Hey, Merry Christmas, Tom. Thanks for doing this, Brother Man, and thanks for about two weeks of of fun reading for me as well. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. It's always a pleasure. Take care, sir. Thank you. On the other side, the one and only Sandy Clough. And see you, what a disappointment, your Broncos, and just love having Sandy on. So it's December the 9th. It's going to be 35 for a high. I'm Peter Boyle, 710 KNUS. Lou, it's all yours. Hang on. We're coming right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.